welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gunn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. A day of reckoning. Allegations of sexual misconduct rock the Court of Master Sommeliers. National lockdown announced in England. Australian exports on the rise. Diageo buys UK gin and vodka producer Chase Distillery. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. So first for our Week in Wine, uh, despite all the big news that happened this week, we had a a personal reason to be festive, uh, and that was the wedding of your sister Lucy, wasn't it, Matthew? And that's right, and it was a virtual wedding, which was quite exciting, a little chaotic, but a lot of fun. And my sister is currently living in Turkey, and on Friday she got married to her Turkish boyfriend, Vulcan. And to celebrate, we all met up on Zoom, all with a bottle of Don Perignon. So my dad had a bottle, my mum had a bottle, Lucy had a bottle, and we had a bottle here in California. And it's the perfect excuse to drink Don Perignon at 10 o'clock in the morning and dress up all fancy as if we're at the wedding itself. And on a weekday on top of that. And that was a 2008 vintage, fabulous wine, and also gave us an excuse to, to dress up. So you had your suit on. I got my dress and my high heels on. First time I've put lipstick on, I think, since March. So all sort of firsts uh, in this new COVID world, but really good time. And even though we weren't able to be together in person, which obviously would have been ideal, I think we, we made the most of it. Yes, it felt like we were together and that we were connected. And hopefully next year we'll be able to actually go over and visit. Fingers crossed. Well, and also the advantage of the Zoom wedding was that we each had our bottle of Dom Perignon, so we did not have to share it with the group. But we, in fact, had a little more uh, to go around since it was just the two of us. So maybe even um, an advantage there. Yes, although I did have to share it with you, unfortunately, and and vice versa. And now on with the news. The Court of Master Sommeliers was hit by scandal this week, as an article in the New York Times outlined many cases of sexual harassment from Master Sommeliers towards aspiring female sommes. The article records the experiences of 21 women over the last decade, including text messages, groping, unwanted advances, and rape. The allegations forced Jeff Cruz to resign as president of Guildsom, the educational arm of the court which he founded, although he denies any wrongdoing. Seven different women recorded being the victims of sexual harassment by him, and two even said they had had sex with him believing that it was the only way to advance their careers. Other MSAs accused included Robert Bath, Directory of the Culinary Institute of America, Drew Hendricks, and Fred Dame. And this isn't the first controversy to hit the court. Bob Bath was suspended between 2007 and 2009 over allegations of sexual misconduct, and the court has received numerous complaints over inappropriate behaviour over the years. Earlier this year, the court was also heavily criticised for not responding to the Black Lives Matter movement. And in 2018, a cheating scandal saw 24 successful new master sommeliers have their award removed after two of the candidates had received information on the wines. This scandal also revealed that Matt Stamp, another MS and owner of Compline Restaurant in Napa, had had sexual relationships with two of the candidates that he was due to score for that exam, which meant he had to recuse himself. Well, this, of course, sparked quite a bit of outrage uh, in the wine industry. Such a highly respected organization uh, within the trade to be faced with such accusations met with facts to, to back it all up. Now, I would like to mention just the, the name of the author of this New York Times article, Julia Moskin. Uh, she wrote an 
exceptional article, not only, you know, conveying all the facts, but um, writing it in a, a very clear and eloquent style. So uh, hats off to her. My initial reaction was just a surprise that people are surprised. You know, I've worked with a few of the named men uh, on various professional projects and never thought very highly of them. Many of these individuals are known for aggressive, arrogant behavior. And as you can imagine, I've spoken with a number of women in the industry about this news. And I've heard similar comments from those that have interacted with these men in the past. One recalled that she commented that Jeff made her feel a bit uncomfortable to other female industry professionals, to which they responded, yeah, he's kind of a creep. So what's upsetting is that these sentiments are shared and have been shared for a long time, and only now are they facing their reckoning after having made severe impacts on women's lives. It's also something to note that the CMS failed miserably in the response to the Black Lives Matter movement, which set out to radically shift a systemic problem. And I believe a similar movement is needed here. You know, I do want to take a moment to praise these women who demonstrated the strength to speak out. And I hope we all can recognize what an incredibly difficult thing it was to do. And that it demonstrates to others who have suffered similar violations that they are not alone. And hopefully strength in numbers will give them the support to be able to speak out as well. Yes, and the question that you've raised there is why has the wine industry tolerated it for so long and actively supported individuals who are in these positions of power? And I've always been confused why some of these named MSs are always called upon to um, host events and to um, host visitors to um, California and elsewhere when their reputation within the industry is known to be um, slightly dubious. And like you, I've met some of these individuals and I've always tried to um, actively not support them, I have to confess. And it brings me back when I moved to the US, I didn't know anything about the Court of Master Sommeliers. It's a very US-centric organization until I watched the uh, Somme movie, which is all about men trying to become Master Sommeliers. And it just seemed to me, even though that film was wildly successful, that the organization lacked any accountability. And that came to light in the cheating scandal. It comes to light here as well, because the only recourse for the women was to complain to the court itself. In other words, to complain to the same men who have been uh, mistreating them. And so it's great that these the stories have actually uh, finally come out. Yes, and you do mention uh, the, the Psalm film. And I remember my first reaction to that movie was that, you know, the women in, that were uh, pictured in the film uh, were all sort of the wives of these um, MS hopefuls. And, you know, they were there, you know, cleaning the glasses and cleaning the, the spittoons, never at the forefront. Uh, it was an extremely white an extremely male-dominated organization, and that came through very clear in the film and and obviously in the news we we heard last week. Yes, and many of these women mentioned in the article um, just gave up on the quartermaster sommeliers and just decided it wasn't worth their bother. They were just do their own thing, and I think that's going to be the case in the future. The reputation is being severely damaged by this scandal as well as the other ones as well. All of this comes in the midst of a UK scandal in which a wine celebrity, Joe Fatterini, host of The Wine Show, is alleged to have sent a series of WhatsApp messages to friends under the hashtag WineBitch. They are intended as satirical pieces of members of the wine industry to be read by a small group of friends during the boredom of lockdown. But one of those friends forwarded the messages and they eventually found their way into the hands of some of those targeted. After informally and privately apologising to some of those people, the matter died down, until in September Fatterini released another eight hashtag wine bitch messages, causing further upset among those targeted. 
Although the supposed satire wasn't solely targeted at women, it targeted pretty much everyone in the UK wine industry, it nevertheless provoked accusations of misogyny. Well, the wine bitch was supposed to be a bit more private than they were public, um, but somehow the news leaked out. Uh, these messages do recall the Hosemaster, uh, who used to launch satirical diatribes, sometimes directly aimed at certain individuals in the industry, which were more cruel than they were funny, and were often thinly veiled misogyny. And kind of goes to show that these white men's behavior is tolerated and allows others to behave in the same way. So hopefully moving forward with all of this, it, it shows that, you know, this is no longer going to be tolerated and enough is enough. And hopefully all these revelations and accusations change such behavior. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a full lockdown in England on Saturday to last until the 2nd of December. The announcement came 10 days after Johnson had said a national lockdown would not happen, persisting with a localized approach, which saw different tiers of closures imposed region by region, which we've tried to explain on the pod recently. However, amid rising cases, he was forced to perform a U-turn with the possibility of the lockdown continuing beyond December. The lockdown means that all pubs, bars, and restaurants are closed except for delivery and takeaway while everyone is encouraged to work from home and travel only for emergencies. The aim is that the lockdown will act as a so-called circuit breaker, which the labor opposition have been calling for for several weeks, and that the country will be able to open up for Christmas so that families can get together. Another blow for the hospitality industry in the UK, uh, as their uh, businesses are forced to close once again, uh, the argument is that this should have been done at least a month ago, if not longer, so that um, this kind of circuit breaker could have worked and then everything could reopen. But now that the government has allowed it to go on for this period of time means that the lockdown could actually last longer than it would have done had it been imposed earlier. So nervous times in the UK. And of course, this is echoed across Europe because France has gone into national lockdown as well. All this chaos and uncertainty isn't going away. Oh, we continue on this kind of up and down path, and it's really difficult to, to plan for the future. Uh, we don't know what it holds. Australia this week released its export figures, which saw an increase in value, although not volume, in the 12 months up to the end of September 2020. The overall value rose by 4% to nearly 3 billion Australian dollars, the highest level since 2007 although volume, volume fell by 0.4%. The average value also rose by 4% to 3 Australian dollars 89 cents a litre. This growth has been driven primarily by the UK and China. Perhaps surprisingly, the highest levels of growth came between July and September with an increase of 23%, offsetting a small decline in exports in the first six months of 2020. Australia has also seen an increased demand for higher-end wines, with the average price of exported bottled wine at seven Australian dollars and fourteen cents per litre. Bulk wine also rose by thirteen percent in value compared to two percent in volume. The huge growth in the UK of eighteen percent in value and ten percent in volume is said to be because of firms stockpiling up wine before Brexit comes into place in January. 
Well, I think these figures sort of echo what we've been talking about on the pod in recent weeks is how, you know, initially during lockdown back in March, uh, we saw a real uptick in retail for that really entry level price point. Whereas now we're seeing sort of a shift in the trend. Uh, people are looking to trade up a little more, uh, maybe try to add a little variety to their uh, wine consumption, seeing as many are enjoying wines at home versus um, out in restaurants and in bars. So it's it's nice to see this uptick in value uh, versus volume. And of course, the dreaded um, specter of Brexit uh, raises its head in this story. With uh, I think this has been a general trend of importers stockpiling wine because no one has any idea what's going to happen in January, where there's going to be a deal, what kind of deal there's going to be, what kind of paperwork's going to be needed. So get as much wine in as possible uh, for 2021, especially if people continue to keep drinking good wine. Diageo has expanded its small gin portfolio by buying UK distillery Chase. Chase are based in Hertfordshire and make premium gin and vodka from a potato base. Founded by William Chase, who also owns high-end, crisp, firm Tyrrells, the emphasis is on British-grown produce and sustainable practices, leading to the observation that not only is Diageo expanding its gin range, there is also a greater emphasis on reducing the company's carbon footprint. Chase makes seven gins, four vodkas, and an elderflower liqueur. There's also a premium gin made from apples called William's Elegant 48 Gin. And the deal is expected to go ahead in 2012, uh, subject to approval. Yeah, Chase is quite a cool story because uh, William Chase set it up to actually be sustainable because of leftover products from the production of his crisps. He wanted to um, go towards to use them to make vodka and gin. And also um, kind of the potato season means that it's not completely efficient for um, crisps. And so he wanted to make sure that any leftover product, any extra potatoes he had, would actually be used. So quite a sustainable project. And as you mentioned, everything is British grown and um, everything is all about sustainable practices. So it's a good project. Um, But buying um, Chase just emphasizes the popularity of gin, especially in the UK. It's a sector which just grows and grows, and Diageo, of course, wants to be part of that. And now for our wine of the week, which is, Katie? Garçon Tanat Reserve 2015 from Uruguay. So this week we travel to South America, to the small country of Uruguay, overshadowed by its two giant neighbors, Brazil and Argentina, but one that makes fantastic wine that's well worth checking out. Uh, We visited back in 2017 and we were both just enamored with the country. You know, it was friendly people, amazing wines, amazing food, pretty much for half the price tag that you get in Argentina. The main wine grape variety grown there is Tanat, which this wine is made from. It works in Uruguay because its thick skins are resistant to the rot, which can be an issue in Uruguay's moderate Atlantic climate, which is very similar to Bordeaux's. Those thick skins also lead to high tannins, which Tanat is famous for, uh, although they are softer and riper than those found in Mataran in southwest France, where the grape originates. And so I tasted you on this blind last night, Matthew, and you didn't quite get there, did you? No, as much as I love Uruguay, um, it's never on my radar when it comes to blind tastings. Although sometimes people do throw the wines in because they are important, even though it's a small country. Uh, These wines are of good quality. Uh, They drink a lot 
in Brazil in particular. That's kind of its big market. And, you know, this wine is here available in California, so it's not completely obscure. But I immediately guessed Syrah. I was actually pretty confident uh, because it's so ripe, voluptuous and meaty. It really reminded me of a wine from Southern Rhone or Provence. After Katie told me that I was wrong, I eventually found my way to Malbec. That was my kind of next guess, but I couldn't decide if it was from Argentina or from Cahors in southwest France. And I thought you were on the right track there, at least. I thought um, that was a, a solid guess. Yeah, I wasn't displeased by my guess. I don't think it was uh, completely ridiculous. But that is the tricky thing with Uruguay in general. It's kind of halfway between Europe and warmer parts of South America. So the wines are different from Argentina, not as high alcohol, not as ripe, but at the same time, they're different from the wines of France with um, that kind of warmer South American influence. So they're kind of a halfway house in a good way, good introduction to South America without being kind of blown away. Well, in any case, the wine was fantastic. Uh, it's made by a fairly large producer, Garçon, and is a, an extremely approachable, full-bodied wine, which will appeal to lovers of Malbec, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, or warmer climate Syrah. The alcohol is 14.5% and cost is around $25. So I would say that's a bargain. Yeah, and that price is for the 2015 vintage. I think more current vintages are a little bit cheaper. So it's really um, good value wine. I think it really does punch way above its weight. And we enjoyed it greatly. And we made a, a really nice aubergine, or eggplant as they say in the US, uh, dish with a spinach and a ricotta filling. And it went really well with um, the vegetables. It just shows that kind of a, a robust red wine like this doesn't just have to go with meat, which is, of course, what they eat in Uruguay and Argentina quite a bit. Well, and that's what I was nervous about uh, doing this blind tasting, thinking that we couldn't then enjoy it with our meal. But I was quite happy with how it all turned out. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. We very much appreciate your thoughts and feedback. So please rate and review us uh, wherever you find your podcast. It just helps uh, other people find us and, you know, helps spread the word because we, we would really like to see this podcast grow. Uh, we hope it's beneficial to all of our trade and consumers out there too. And we hope to see you next week. Go out, get some Uruguayan wine and drink it while you listen to us. Cheerio.